This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you have found Forum, Nature Biotechnology's podcast, where we speak with leading researchers in the field about their work, about recent publications, either in our pages or elsewhere, or just general topics of interest. And today, we have a roundtable on gene therapy. And this roundtable was run by Marcus Elsner, a senior editor at Nature Biotech, and he's with me now. So the first question is, why gene therapy? Why a roundtable on gene therapy now? Yeah, there are actually quite a few reasons, uh, quite a few anniversaries that uh, happened last year, uh, happening this year, or will happen next year. So this year, 25 years ago, uh, the American Society for Gene Therapy, or Gene and Cell Therapy, how it's called now, was founded. Last year, 30 years ago, uh, the first human gene therapy trial was started at the NIH with a, a four-year-old girl called Ashanti De Silva. And next year, 50 years ago, the actual term uh, gene therapy was coined in a paper by science, in Science by Theodore Friedman and Richard Roblin. So yeah, that's uh, quite a few reasons to, uh, to check in. And in addition to that, we uh, had quite a spectacular uh, clinical trial reported in the New England Journal of Medicine by one of our guests, Donald Cohn, who uh, reported uh, a very successful treatment of, the se- of severe combined immunodeficiency um, which was coincidentally also the first uh, ever uh, disease that was treated with gene therapy all the way back uh, in 1990. You know, when you when you say it like that, that the term gene therapy was coined almost 50 years ago, it's amazing. It feels like we're now still just at the beginning of understanding what gene therapy can do, and it's been 50 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it has been quite a ride, um, along with deaths, unfortunately, uh, safety concerns, efficacy uh, issues. But I think now um, we have thousands of people, thousands of people in clinical trials. um, And I think we can expect, hopefully, quite a few more approvals in in coming years, also for much more common diseases, as we will hear in the podcast. So yeah, I think it has been quite a ride, but I think we can look forward to more successes in, in upcoming years. Right. So can you tell me more about the two guests? 
Yeah, so we have Donald Cohn, um, who has been working, as we will hear in the podcast, on gene therapy since 1985. Uh, he's a professor at UCLA. And then we have uh, Kathy High, who is uh, president of Ask Bio, uh, North Carolina-based biotech. Uh, but she's probably better known as uh, a co-founder and former president of Spark Therapeutics, uh, one of the really pioneering companies in the gene therapy field. Okay, I think that's um, that's all we need. So here it is, episode eleven of four. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, first of all, again, thank you very much for, for making the time. It's a real pleasure to have the two of you here and answering my questions. The first thing I'm, I'm interested in is... How did you get interested in uh, gene therapy? Started, who started when in the field? Oh, that's I, true. Yes, yeah. That's 1985, good... for, 1985 for me. Well, okay, that, that's very interesting. I was a hematology fellow, I'm embarrassed to admit it, from 81 to 84. And uh, during that time, I was working in a hemoglobinopathy lab at Yale, in Ed Benz's lab, but the genes for factor eight and factor nine were cloned right around that time in 81 and 84. And I had come from a residency training program that had a very strong background in blood coagulation at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, after I finished my hematology training program, they uh, offered me a position at UNC Chapel Hill to start as an assistant professor and I was actually very excited about the prospect of uh, being able to determine the molecular defects in people with hemophilia. And also, they had a 
dog colony of dogs with hemophilia B. And I was excited about the idea of determining the defect in the dogs and then maybe using them as a platform for developing a gene therapy approach. And that was really how I got interested. And I, I was interested in immunology as a resident. There was a, Richard Hong was a professor there who had been involved in the very first bone marrow transplant for SCID. And so during my pediatric residency in Madison, Wisconsin, I saw several SCID patients. So decided to go and do my fellowship with Michael Blaze at the NIH. And just before I joined him, he had connected with French Anderson to start working on gene therapy for ADA SCID. So I sort of got there right as that program started. And as I like to say, I'm still doing the exact same experiment 35 years later. <laughs> yeah, just I realized that this podcast is ideally timed. Uh, it's 25 years of ASGCT. It's uh, 31 years since uh, the first actual human gene therapy trial with uh, Ashanti da Silva. Uh, it's almost 50 years since Theodore Friedman uh, wrote that science article coining the mm -hmm. uh, term gene therapy. One thing that once you got interested in uh, gene therapy that you came up against was how do I get, after you've identified the responsible genes, is to, how do I get the genes into the right cells? And I'm sure there's there's been a long history of developing vectors. Uh, maybe you can explain to our listeners what vectors are currently used. Maybe we can start with the ex vivo gene therapy and uh, and Don, maybe you can talk about what vectors are we using for ex vivo gene therapy. Sure. So Inder Verma used to have a slide that said the three biggest issues in gene therapy are delivery, delivery, delivery. And, I, and, it, we're, and we're still basically struggling with those three problems. So for ex vivo, you know, we're t usually talking about hematopoietic stem cells or T cells, both of which proliferate a lot either, you know, when they do their normal um, function. And so it was pretty clear early on you needed something that would be permanently in the genome and would get propagated to the, to the daughter's cells. And so the use of mouse retroviruses you know, developed as, as a gene delivery tool sort of in the early 80s, and people found ways to sort of gut the viral packaging information out of the virus and put the human pathogen into them, provide those packaging functions in trans, and make replication-defective viruses. And so then there was just a series of iterative improvements because the, the early biggest concern was recombination between the packaging information and the vector to generate replication-competent vector. And so RCR, replication competent retrovirus. In fact, in some of the early studies in, in monkeys, they got a vector with a lot of replication competent virus and developed lymphoma. So as they do in mice, they, they, they could cause that. And so a lot of the early focus was on making more and more changes to the vector and the packaging systems to get rid of any overlap. And um, you know, that, that led to the, the first trial, as you mentioned, you know, the NIH first trial with T cells used murine gamma retroviral vectors. And then, you know, the, the other major then event in, in that area was lentiviral vectors. And there were some initial attempts, Art Nienhuis and, and a couple of people had tried putting things into HIV, but the, the, the major uh, event was at the Salk Institute. You got Inder Verma, Didier Trono, and Luigi Naldini, then a postdoc, took all the sort of what had been learned of how to make better retros and made lentis. And they, they had a couple of iterations in the mid-90s, but really the backbone they developed by about 1998 that we call third generation are what we're still using. And to my knowledge, they've never generated replication-competent virus in any of the large-scale manufacturings or any research lab. So 
that they, they really did solve that problem. And the lenties are, are, are more efficient than retros. They have better carrying capacity. They go into non-dividing cells. And so in a sense, vector development for, for ex vivo hasn't changed much over the last 25 years. We're still basically using the CCL RRL backbones that they made. Don, they also have not been associated with insertional mutagenesis. Right, in defense of the gamma retroviral vectors, it's really not so much whether it's a retro or a lenti, it's what kind of enhancers it carries. And so the, the retroviruses, you know, we chose them because nature showed these things are capable of expressing very highly from their long terminal repeats because of their strong enhancers. And, and that's how they cause, you know, murine leukemia. They insert randomly in the genome, and the ones that are happen to be next to an oncogene, the enhancers turn them on. And so by the time the lentis came along, that was appreciated. And so they made them with the LTR enhancers self-inactivating or SIN vectors. So I think a lot of the improved safety of the lentis really is the absence of strong enhancers. And for example, in the in vitro transformation assays that are done as preclinical work, lentis that carry strong retroviral long-term repeats as internal promoters can be transforming. So they're, they're, the lentis pattern of insertions may be somewhat less dangerous than the retros because they tend to go throughout the gene body and not concentrating near the five prime ends of the genes. But it's really more whether you're carrying dynamite than whether you get there in a truck or a car is my, my yeah. analogy for that. And so, but you're right that the, the clinical safety profile for the lentis, you know, I, I don't know if anyone's keeping track, but it's probably in the range of a thousand people who've gotten lentiviral vectors into hematopoietic stem cells for a variety of blood cell diseases. And there've been a couple of sort of transient clonal expansions, but there have been no cases of, of leukemia, whereas they were quite common, unfortunately, with the intact LTR gamma retroviral vectors. So since we're talking about the constructs that you're actually putting into the lentiviruses, have elements like uh, insulators and other uh, genomic elements, have they contributed to making the constructs safer? Or is that something that is commonly done at the moment to insulate strong enhancers maybe from surrounding genomic sequences? Yeah, that, that, the, the question of insulators, you know, it hasn't been... The, the big plus that was thought, the, the hope is, you know, insulators kind of have two functions. They can block enhancers, they can block the virus enhancers from turning on nearby genes. And the other activity insulators are going to have is blocking heterochromatization from the outside to keep the gene on. And so people have tried them, and there's a couple have been using clinical trials. I don't know of really much strong data that says they have their positive attributes. And Inadvertently, in fact, one of the clonal expansions that occurred that wound up, fortunately wound up not being a transformational leukemia, the first patient to get a lentiviral vector for beta thalassemia by Philippe Lebouch and colleagues had an insulator and one vector integrated in um, the in, in a downstream intron of HMG2A, and the insulator acted as a splice acceptor, so it had a cryptic splice acceptor site in it, and the, so the HMG2A transcript terminated in the vector and lost its three prime tail that's involved in regulation. And so that led to overexpression and a clonal expansion. So there, you know, there's an example of them causing problems. And so I, I think most people are not using them. There hasn't been the golden one that just, you know, really improves expression or really improves safety. I, one of the things that we've been doing with Lentis, we're trying to make more sophisticated regulatory elements. You know, a lot of the vectors that are out there have used the CMV promoter, the SV40, elongation factor, alpha, they're kind of constitutive. So we've been looking at trying to bash the gene, the locus for a specific gene, find the regulatory elements, 
and find ways to parse them down enough we can get them into a lentiviral vector and get physiologic expression. And so we've made some progress in, in doing that. We had a vector for FOXP3 that used its endogenous elements that seemed to be quite Treg specific. So I think that's been one of the, the, the advances is trying to get you know, more precise expression regulation in the context of an inserting vector. And I guess that's both about cell type specificity and expression levels, right? That you also get endogenous levels. Right. And, you know, mm -hmm. obviously the, the major competition with that is site-specific gene integration using CRISPR, for example, where you could stick the whole cDNA right after its own promoter and in theory, you know, recapitulate that normal expression pattern. But, you know, that's not quite there for the clinic yet and whereas lentes are. And so I, I think there's at least a window of time in which regulated lentes may be useful for some disorders mm -hmm. where, you, where you need not just like adenosine deaminase skid has been the, one of the easiest diseases because you just need some expression and it can be everywhere. Whereas other, you know, transgenes obviously have very lineage and temporal specific expression that need to be achieved to get therapeutic safe effect. So what do we do if we can't uh, isolate the cells and do our uh, gene therapy in vitro? Obviously, when we started thinking about hemophilia, we were targeting the liver. And as you indicate, it doesn't lend itself well to being removed and then put back in, although there are people who are interested in doing that sort of thing. Um, and so we began to look at everything that was out there, including retroviral vectors and adenoviral vectors and AAV. And we were really agnostic about which vector we used. But what we found once we learned to make AAV, which wasn't easy <laughs> at the time, uh, was that it, uh, it clearly has tropism for the liver and was giving us the best results first in mice and then in the dog model of hemophilia. So that was what we chose to move forward with. And uh, maybe similar to Don's experience, you know, each of these vectors becomes a, an area of study in itself. And uh, so we, we moved forward with AAV. And of course, it does have tropism for other uh, tissues as well. Uh, again, to echo the comment about delivery, delivery, delivery. Uh, if you inject it intravenously, unless you do something special to make it avoid the liver, most of it will go there, but it will transduce other tissues that you can reach intravenously, like the heart and the skeletal muscle. Uh, and so in addition to those tropisms, I mean, the other very attractive feature of AAV is that it is predominantly non-integrating. So uh, you have less concern about issues related to insertional mutagenesis. And, um, you know, as we know now for both uh, AAV and for retroviral and lentiviral vectors, I mean, there's a regulatory path um, that has led to approved products. So all of those things make AAV attractive as a vector. And of course, there are many diseases that you can target that you can address targeting the liver, not just hemophilia. So can the fact that the DNA is not integrated in the genome, I guess if you have dividing cells, that also might cause problems that you maybe lose the expression. Yes, and, and for sure, this is an important constraint. So going into rapidly dividing target cells will more or less assure that you will have only transient expression. Sometimes, of course, that's what you want. But most of the time, we're looking for long-term expression. And then you can't go into rapidly dividing target cells because you will lose expression of a non-integrating vector in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. 
historically I, I was just intrigued by that when uh when when i did my research for the interview how did we settle on mainly two vectors that are used for i think the vast majority of all uh, gene therapy trials because there are many many more viruses that infect humans but it seems that all the trials have been conducted with basically three kinds av adenoviruses and either lenti or retroviruses how did that happen well, I, my answer is that it's survival of the fittest. Yes. Right? Mm. I mean, that, that, it, it has to do with their efficacy as well as um, ease of manufacturing mm -hmm. and titering and all those other things that mm -hmm. are important for clinical application and for the regulators. Yeah, and among the viral vector viruses, they're relatively simple. And therefore, they're relatively simple to make sort of into a binary system of packaging elements and vector backbone. Uh, you know, a lot of other vectors have been looked at. Um, herpes virus for NERS, for example, much more complicated virus. You know, adenovirus is very efficient delivery, but it's very inflammatory. And so I think it's really lost. It, it's, it's hard to think of a clinical situation where AAV wouldn't be safer and, you know, have the same efficacy to a large extent. And so... No, I, I mean, for some... For some oncology indications, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pro-inflammatory is good. So. Right, the oncolytic viruses and any, and right. it is for that. That's about all it's really being used for, I think. Not yeah. for, not for you know genetic disease where you need lifelong persistence. Yeah, or vaccines, as I can test to having received the AstraZeneca vaccine. Oh, it's, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> there, there, it's, um, it's a feature, not a bug, that it's inflammatory. Exactly. So do you think there are better vectors out there that we can find or engineer? I mean, I know that there are a lot of efforts to engineer better vectors. Uh, so, so where do you see the, the signs of these viral vectors going? Well, you know, I think, you know, there's been a lot of effort to, for non-viral delivery of nanoparticles. And I, I'm a little nanoskeptical. And to the present time, I haven't seen Many of those have the, the favorable properties these viral vectors have of efficiency, of um, persistence. And so, but I think there's a lot of effort to make hybrids with you know, a variety of different materials. And so I think there will be effective in vivo delivery systems to, for example, target the hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow rather than having to take them out and give chemotherapy before you give them back. So that's really a very, you know, for sickle cell disease, for example, a really critical unmet need is ability to do in vivo gene therapy with an injection rather than a you know a month in the hospital getting cytoreductive chemotherapy and so there, there's still a huge need for improved delivery methods but um, you know the viruses spent many years evolving to be very efficient and they still are you know what, what I would say about AAV yes I think there's still a great deal to do in terms of engineering the capsid to alter tropism to either specifically detarget certain tissues or to target them. So I think there's still a lot to do in terms of that. Selecting for specific features like the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, you know, increasing the number of uh, options we have for that. I think that one of the areas of greatest interest uh, for people who work on AAV is to make the vector more efficient in the sense that the number of particles we give to get transduction of X number of cells, I mean, we really have uh, particles in vast excess of, of the number of cells we're transducing. And so there is some lack of efficiency there. 
and you know better understanding of the steps that block transduction or that render it less efficient would would be uh, an area that could make a big difference mm-hmm. in uh, in dosing, which would help to solve some of the challenges in the manufacturing supply constraints. As uh, right now, the demand for AV manufacturing far outstrips the worldwide capacity to supply it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think there are a lot of avenues for additional research that could make a difference. I mean, I will say that I think lipid nanoparticles have made great strides over the last decade, and and they're critical for gene editing in the liver, for example. Mm-hmm. So I am uh, I'm excited about the ability to target at least one tissue with lipid mm-hmm. nan- nanoparticles. I don't know, you know, I don't know how quickly we'll see other tissues come online. I think Intelia's data on uh, ATTR uh, actually looked quite good for CRISPR uh, gene editing. So I think especially for AAV, I think it's a bit less of an issue for um, for lentiviruses as cargo capacity. I know for genome editing, that's that's a huge constraint, um, but I guess it must be, for depending on what gene you want to deliver, quite a, a big constraint for classical gene therapy too. I guess for AVs, there's very little one can do about that. Or can you engineer larger cargo capacity? Well, I think people are certainly interested in that. I I do. Uh, <laughs> I was a chemistry major in college, but I took a lot of physics courses. One thing I learned is that you can't fight physics. So when you <laughs> when you have a capsule that's a certain size, you know there, there's you're not going to pack more DNA into it than uh-huh. uh, than the capsid size can accommodate. Uh, so. You're going to have to look for some other solution to that. But, you know, uh, we've actually addressed a number of conditions that have uh, cDNAs that don't fit into AAV. So, for example, in hemophilia A, people have shown using protein therapeutics that you can cut out the large central B domain and you still have a functional factor A gene. And similarly, in the trials for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, people have engineered many dystrophins that seem to, you know, seem to be having a therapeutic effect. So I do think that there is a good way to marry some of the exciting work that's gone on in protein engineering uh, with the constraints of AAV carrying capacity and, and get uh, therapeutic outcomes. Kathy, how how efficient does the approach of sort of splitting the gene into two different viruses and co-delivering them work for AAV? I, I don't know, you know, how I know that's an approach that's looked at. I don't know how effective it is. There are situations where that can work. For example, if the protein itself has two halves and they can actually be assembled intracellularly, people have done that for hemophilia A, for example. Uh, for the factor eight gene, just had one vector that makes one part and another vector that makes another. Of course, then you've got to get both vectors into a single cell uh, unless they can assemble in the bloodstream. Uh, you know, in general, as an approach, I'm less enthusiastic about that or about these splicing approaches or in teen approaches, mm-hmm. you know, things where you eventually put things together. To me, if you can truncate the protein, then every transduction event is a successful event. 
you don't need two transduction events. And, you know. I actually don't know. So in an AAV, you can fit about four and a half kilobases of sequence. How well, you can you actually go up to about five KB before okay. it starts falling off. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry, you were trying <laughs> to get the lengthy. Exactly. So how much can you fit into a, uh, in a clinical antivirus? Right. So a HIV's genome, I believe, is about 10 KB for the whole, the whole thing. And, and, but it turns out that when you make lentiviral vectors, there's a direct drop-off in titer as you make more insert. And so um, it's where we've spent a lot of time with beta-globin vectors that tend to need a lot large set of regulatory elements to get high level of expression. And they're notoriously low titer, poor transduction. And we, we actually had a paper last year showing that you know, with a series of increasing size of payloads, there's just a direct drop-off in titer. And in fact, even there's, there's, it's even worse than that because these longer vectors at any given MOI or concentration transduce less efficiently because they have incomplete genomes. So we think that during transcription from the packaging plasma or the vector plasma during packaging, you get incomplete RNA genomes formed the longer the virus is. So more of the virus are carrying defective genomes that can't reverse transcribe. So they're almost like defective interfering particles. And so it's really important to minimize the payload. And so four to six KB of insert is, is good. Once you start getting above that, you know, titers really start falling off. We've tried various ways to try and you know, improve the processivity of the RNA during packaging, but haven't really made a, a major impact on that. I guess another limitation for, for in vivo gene therapy is uh, pre-existing immunity and the difficulties with redosing. So are there approaches to, um, to circumvent those issues? Well, yeah, again, people, I think, have looked at uh, a number of different strategies for that. You know, uh, Marcus, I'm a hematologist, so I, you know, uh, my, my own orientation would be that there, there are a lot of potential strategies for getting rid of antibodies, mm -hmm. at least transiently, mm -hmm. which is really all you need to, to get mm -hmm. an AAB vector infused intravenously. But, I mean, for example, there are physical methods like plasmapheresis. Uh, there are drugs that will stop the production of B cells and plasma cells, at least transiently. And uh, there is um, there's a recently approved drug in Europe, an endopeptidase that specifically cleaves uh, IgGs. It's actually approved for preventing antibody-dependent killing in renal transplantation, but it may have applications uh, for pre-existing antibodies to AAV as well. One thing we already talked about a bit is safety. Before you test a new gene therapy in people, how does preclinical pre testing look like? What do you do before you start your clinical trial? Maybe Don, you can start. Uh... Sure. So there, there's a you know a series of assays you can do to test the relative safety of the vectors. And, and so, you know, I, was, I talked earlier about the retroviral vectors that had strong transforming LTRs. And, and so one of the, there's an in vitro assay where you take murine bone marrow hematopoietic stem cells, you transduce them with the vector or the control or, or mock, and then you culture them for a couple of weeks. And all the true stem cells will exhaust during that time unless they got transformed by the vector. So then you do a limiting dilution plating, and, it, and the number of colonies you get formed is really quite 
a good readout of the sort of the genotoxicity of the vector. So if you have a lenti that has kind of a bland internal promoter, you get no colonies for them because the cell is exhausted. Whereas if you put in one of these retroviruses with a strong LTR, you get many colonies. So that's actually, I, I think that's one of the, the better assays because it gives you a nice quantitative logical outcome. Um, you know, the other studies are doing in vivo tox studies where you put them into a mouse, either put in human cells with the vector or mouse cells with the vector. You transplant 25, 50 mice and you look for tumors or other genotoxicity, which almost is never seen in those models. And so I think you know, you're, you're testing only a fraction of a patient dose, and the, the occurrences that happen in patients occurred over two to five years, not over the three to four months to do those. While they're traditionally done, and you know, the FDA typically wants them done, I think their predictive value is, is relatively weak. Um, you can look you know, also in the cells that have been in the mice for four months, are there expansions of clones with the vectors near oncogenes? Um, so they're, they're, that's sort of the kind of tip, it's, it's mainly genotoxicity that's, that's looked for in the preclinical studies. Yeah, so because AAVs are administered intravenous, I mean, sorry, uh, in vivo, uh, typically most of the preclinical work is done also in the same way and, uh, you know, a, a very extensive package would be in two species, injecting the vector into two different species, uh, using the same route of administration that would be used in the clinic and looking for any toxicity uh, and also trying to use those studies as well as allometric scaling to accurately estimate a starting dose in humans. I think the problem we've had with the AAV is that people who are experienced in drug development know that uh, side effects in humans are accurately predicted by work in animals about 70% of the time, which means that you will encounter things in human subjects that were not predicted by the studies in animals. And of course, uh, we did see that very clearly uh, with AAV. And, uh, you know, there, there are multiple examples of that, but perhaps one of the most striking was that uh, people had given AAV into the respiratory tract in people with cystic fibrosis, uh, into skeletal muscle in people with DMD, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or actually in hemophilia B, but that the very brisk immune responses that occurred when AAV was administered intravenously were not predicted by animals who are mostly naive to AAV, whereas humans have memory, immunological memory to AAV, and were not predicted by uh, the earlier studies in the respiratory tract or in skeletal muscle. Have you gotten any better in predicting side effects over the last 30 years? Well, I mean, to the extent that the, the early work uncovers them so that you can plan for <laughs> them in advance. But are we better at predicting them with a new class of therapeutics? I'm, I'm not sure I would hazard a guess on that. But so I, I guess the question is, are you, you know, how often are steroids or other things given prophylactically to try and prevent immune response to the capsids? Has that become sort of a standard thing or is it trial by trial has decides whether there, there's some trigger to give them or whether they're just given on some schedule? Yeah. Well, the response, as you know, is dose dependent. So if, if you're giving relatively low doses, it's, uh, it would typically be given only if needed. Whereas if you're giving very high doses, such as people given the Duchenne muscular dystrophy trials, it would be 
more common to make a provision for, or or is as is done in Zolgensma, right? I mean, all those children are on high dose steroids, uh, beginning before the vector is infused. Uh, so again, it's dose dependent. It's also route of administration dependent. I mean, you know, direct injection of AAV into the into the central nervous system uh, hasn't really been associated with immune responses. Yeah, maybe we can look a bit into the future. I think currently all clinical development programs for for gene therapy target monogenetic diseases. Um, so will we move to more complex diseases anytime soon, or do, are we still having our hands full with with the monogenetic diseases? Well, of course, you know the other major application as a as a disease category is cancer. Of course, and, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and, and although and so you know, I still think of CAR T cells as a form of gene therapy. You know, so that's obviously been incredibly effective. I mean, it, you know, it's one of the biggest revolutions I think in medicine in my career, the ability to you know take a patient's T cells, engineer them, and eliminate their 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 cancer. And so that's obviously been you know, and there and there's many many more applications obviously in great need in, in, in oncology. You know, the the more complex diseases, I, I you know, if it's a multigenic problem, I think the 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 likely approach would be to express some other molecule that's going to affect the process. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, again, the complex traits are, are going to be more, much more difficult to approach with gene therapy than the monogenic, you know, one gene, one disorder. It's, it's one gene, one treatment. And so it, it's, they are much easier to, to approach. Yeah. I, I think I would just add to that. If, if you look at the uh, gene therapies that have been approved to date, which uh, except for the CAR T cells are all for single gene disorders. Um, the, the striking thing is that almost all of these have been approved on trials of a handful of patients, dozens of patients, not uh, the sort of thing that we see with small molecule drugs for cardiovascular disease, for example, where you see thousands of patients enrolled in the trial. I mean, and, and what that tells you is the power of supplying the missing gene to the physiologically relevant target tissue, right? And, and Scott Gottlieb, one of the former FDA commissioners, noted that for gene therapies, in contrast to other classes of therapeutics, you know, maybe you spend 20% of your time reviewing the clinical results, they're usually clear cut. And you spend 80% of your time reviewing the CMC portion of the application, right? Because it's the product that is complex, not the interpretation of the clinical data. So, so that's one point that I would make. I will say that I think the, the things that I look forward to, I believe that in the next five years, we're going to have licensed drugs for some very large single gene disorders that everybody is familiar with based on you know, television, the movies, and so forth. I, I think we're going to have a licensed product for sickle cell disease, and it may be a gene editing product, or it may be a, a lentiviral product, but that's huge. I mean, whether you have to come into the hospital and uh, do bone marrow conditioning or not, that's just huge. I mean, uh, you know, I think we'll have a product for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I think we'll have a product for hemophilia. And, and these are single gene disorder. I mean, all of the approved gene therapies at this point are, I would say, fairly obscure diseases. <laughs> I mean, they may be well known to pediatric neurologists or to ophthalmologists who take care of, 
uh, children born with congenital blindness, but you know they're not they're not diseases that in the popular imagination are important uh, inherited diseases. And so I think I think that will be a very big event over the next five years. I think that that will change people's perception of gene therapy. You know, the question about these complex acquired disorders, uh, there is actually work already going on. For example, in age-related macular degeneration, there are multiple trials ongoing. Uh, there are other older trials that failed. Um, there are trials of gene therapy for Parkinson's disease. AskBio is doing one. There are trials going on for heart failure. But Don is right that most of these are really uh, multifactorial, of multifactorial etiology. And my own feeling is that um, these may be more like uh, oncology, where the response rates you get with a single agent are typically not very good. But if you put three or four of these agents together, you may go from a 15% response rate for each one of those individually to a 75% response rate. And so it may be that for some of these adult neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's uh, or age-related macular degeneration or for conditions like heart failure, you may actually need more than one gene-based treatment to get a therapeutic outcome in more than a, a narrow subset of the patients. I think that's probably a nice way to end the podcast. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that was super insightful. I, I really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Okay, we've reached the end of episode 11 of Forum. Our thanks to Kathy and Don for participating in this. Obviously, we could not have done that without you. If you'd like to comment on this show, on Nature Biotechnology, or anything that the journal does, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. And if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search Nature Biotechnology and Forum wherever you get your podcast, and you'll find it. And you can also subscribe to our two other podcasts, First Rounders and our 10-part series on Antisense out now called Hope, Lies, in Dreams. Okay, that's all. There will be another forum coming shortly. Until then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.